Hello, and welcome to SG Squared. Steve Gladen, the global pastor of small groups from Saddleback Church, pulls from his over 25 years of experience to encourage and equip listeners like you to lead small group ministry. So let's listen and learn together. Today's episode comes from a session that Steve led at a purpose-driven small groups conference. In this session, Steve shares one of the biggest sources of excitement for Saddleback as a church and in each group, evangelism. Steve is going to begin this session by addressing the concerns of the typical small group member, which is that they feel like they might not be a good evangelist. Well, once they find out how different of an experience it is when done as a small group rather than on their own, evangelism and seeing a friend or loved one's life changed by the hope of the gospel, that is an incredibly powerful moment in the life of that small group. Steve will guide us through the journey of equipping small groups to share the gospel, to grow the church, and to lead people to Jesus. Join us in today's episode, How to Move from Making Friends to Reaching Friends. Evangelism is one of the most strongest things, the freedom that Christ can bring is one of the greatest gifts we can give. Before I jump into the session, you know, Rick is just far too modest. But the thing that when you're with him, you realize two great passions he has in these next two sections. One is evangelism. I mean, he is just an evangelistic machine. Uh, the other thing, though, is he's a, a, quite a worship leader. And when you get him behind a piano at a party, man, you see some interesting stuff happen. So anyways, let's get into our notes right here. How to move from making friends to reaching friends. You know, in the years that we've been doing the health assessment, one of the things that we have found is that most people feel that they are low in evangelism. And when you're talking about evangelism, there's so many things where group dynamics interface with evangelism. So how do we kind of get evangelism not only interjected into our small groups, but into our lives as personal believers? Because when we do evangelism, you'll find out that your group gets excited about doing evangelism as a group. So there's a lot of reasons why this thing, this whole session is so critical to when you're trying to balance the five purposes. I love the session number one because it's a passion of mine. There's nothing that excites me more then when you see like the lady that was in the video or when you see the, the person who is successful realize that they need Christ running their lives and they don't. I can't tell you how many small groups are just energized when they, when they email us or they call up and say, so-and-so crossed the line of faith last night. And how excited they are and when they're at the baptism pool, it's just, it's just so energizing. But it's a passion of mine. And the other thing is, is I'm a first-generation Christian. I'm going, what if nobody invited my sister to a group? What if they didn't show her the love of Christ? Where would I be right now? Would I be going after money and materialism? Or would I be helped lives change? And the third thing is, is that this is the only purpose you can't do in heaven. So if you're on the other side and you can do the purpose, and you can do this purpose, you're in a lot of trouble. That'll catch up with you in just a, a little bit. Let's look at uh, page 91. Number one, 
When you want to help people understand how to move from making friends to reaching friends, number one is pray to the Lord of the harvest to send forth workers. Now, as we said, ministry, and when we're talking about the last session, was about believer to believer. This is how you get your groups to go from believer to unbelievers and pray to the Lord of the harvest. Now, when I'm talking about prayer, I know in a Christian conference, you know, that can sound very cliche-ish, like, oh, yes, we, we need to pray. But sometimes the way we pray is kind of how we pray for our dinners. You know, it's a rote prayer. Uh, Jesus, thanks for this food and make a nourishment to our body. Amen. And that's about how our prayer life is for the unbelievers in the harvest. I want to take you through a, a, a story. I want to show you this picture right here. These are my kiddos. And um, when you see them, they look very angelic there, but trust me, they have a very demonic side uh, that can creep out. But as a dad, my job is to make sure they don't go to hell. As a dad, they will not go to hell. I will do everything humanly possible and I will use every ounce of my energy to make sure that those two kids know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I take it so seriously that from the moment these kids were conceived, I have prayed for their salvation. Actually, um, not since the moment they were conceived. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That was a different prayer. Uh, but once I knew they were coming into this world, I would lay my hands on Lisa's stomach, and I would say, Lord, if it would be your will, I would pray that these kids would come to know you at a young age, and that they would serve you strong and they would win many people for the kingdom. And even after they were born, every night I would go into their room, I would lay my hand on their forehead, and I'd say, Lord, would you just touch this child? Help them to see the need for the living Christ. Help them to see that they need you the most in this world. And not only would they find you as Lord and Savior, I pray that they would live strong for you. And I had one of those kind of uh, instances when Joel, uh, Dr. Stoll was taking you through uh, John 21. And it was this time where I was uh, walking around and it was like the Lord said, you know, do you want to see your kids go to heaven? I'm like, well, of course I want to see them go to heaven. And it was like, yeah, but do you really want to see them in heaven? And I go, yeah, I mean, yeah, I really want to see them in heaven. It's just like, do you really want your children in heaven with me? I'm going, Lord, more than anything else. And then it was almost the other question that came around. Do you want to see your neighbors in heaven? I was going, well, some yes, some no. Uh, no, I mean, actually all yes. And he goes, would you pray for your neighbors? like you pray for your children. Can you imagine if every one of you prayed for your neighborhoods like you prayed for the salvation of your family? 
And it set me on a whole new course and a whole new realization of what it meant to pray for the Lord of the harvest. Because I pray for the 15 homes of my cul-de-sac. I pray that every one of them would come to know Christ in a real way like my children will come to know Christ in a real way. Look at Matthew, it says, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. And 2 Corinthians says, all this is from God who reconciled to us through, to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry, circle the word ministry, the ministry of reconciliation. I love what Rick wrote in The Purpose Driven Life. It says, this commission was given to every follower of Jesus, not to pastors and missionaries alone. This is your commission from Jesus, and it's not optional. These words of Jesus are not the great suggestion. If you are part of God's family, your mission is mandatory. To ignore it would be disobedience. You are the only Christian some people will ever know, and your mission is to share Jesus with them. I have always got to know, for prayer to stay at the front of my mind, I have always got to be around unbelievers. And one of the best ways I know to do that as a pastor is I love to be in the pool over there to baptize people, and I love to watch baptisms, because there I hear the life-changing stories that ignites in my soul the reason why I do this. And in church ministry, what can happen is you can get so caught into the programmatic stuff of small group ministry, you can forget the very reason you were called into it. And that was to see lives changed. Every person I baptize is etched into my heart of why I do the ministry. Some of them I'll just never forget. There was two ladies that were both born in 1920. This was about four years ago. They were into their 80s. And one of them had cleft toes. They're like her toes were curled under. So she hobbled when she went into the water. But the most powerful thing was is when they were sitting in the water and they said, it is never too late to find Christ as your Savior. Till we've had some special moments where one guy I baptized, he wanted to get his life together before he proposed to his girlfriend and he, he accepted Christ as Lord and Savior and then he wanted to show the world he was a follower of Christ and got baptized and when he came up out of the water, he had a ring clutched in his hand. <laughs> Marched right over to her, got on one knee and asked her to marry him. And she said no. Uh, but it was so heartfelt, I wanted to give it to him. So uh, it's only one time in the 25 years I've been doing ministry where I baptized this guy and his toupee came off. <laughs> and it takes a lot to paralyze me in the water. But I didn't know what to do because it was floating between us. And he's like going, Jesus lives. And I'm like going, dude, you're old. Uh, so I, I, I mean, I didn't know what to do. So I just kind of reached out and said, hey, this is yours. And he kind of took it, slapped it on his head, and walked on out. Just a great, a great guy. What, what I loved is his son came up to me, and he goes, okay, I want to get this straight. My dad went down a young man and came up an old man. And I go, yeah, the theology doesn't work, but uh, it's, it's true. The second thing is I want you to be not only to pray, is but be sensitive to the needs in your neighborhood. Be sensitive to the needs in your neighborhood. Learn how to cross the street before you get eager to cross the sea. So often we want to run away from those that we can just walk right over to and start to build a relationship. 
You know, I told you the story of my, my, our cul-de-sac, and I kind of want to just give you an aerial snapshot of it and just kind of walk you through it real quick. But this is my cul-de-sac. Right here is where Lisa and I live. This is Steve and Holly, and they have two kids, Michael and Catherine. We moved on the cul-de-sac. Neither one of us had kids. Their kids are the same age uh, as both of our kids. They're just like about six months apart. Steve and Holly are just phenomenal neighbors, and uh, uh, they, but they have the spiritual gift of flakiness. I've invited them to Saddleback uh, countless times, and they say, yeah, we'll come, and then they never show. Uh, but I, I, I love them. This is Keith and Tammy, and they have four kids, Kristen, uh, I mean Kyle and Kristen, and then Kendall and Kevin. And uh, I've had the privilege to walk them across the line of faith, and just a great family who knows Christ. They've been attending Saddleback uh, just for a little bit now. This is Sean and Christy. And they have uh, a stepdaughter named Maddie, um, who's just a couple years older than Erica. Erica just loves to look up to her. And they, um, they have two kids, uh, Ben and Brooke. And uh, what is great is um, I was on the cul-de-sac one time, one, one Easter, because uh, Sean and Christy are just, I mean, my cul-de-sac is phenomenal. They are just the coolest people. I just want to help them get to know the cooler person, which is Jesus. Uh, but I've talked to, had some great chats with uh, Sean and Christy, and, and they're just cool people. Uh, but, uh, you know, but they say, no, I'm just not ready to check out Saddleback and all that yet. And I go, no, that's cool, you know. And they're the ones that give me the greatest thing. They go, you just don't seem like a pastor. And uh, it just, it just, I just love that. Uh, but it was great. As I was talking to Maddie one time when she was on break, and she goes, um, my parents talk a lot about your church. And I go, really? And I go, what do they say? And they go, they say that they should probably check it out sometime, but they're just not ready yet. And so, and I go, thank you. Uh, wait, can't wait till you're on next break. And you kind of give me the update of what goes on inside your house. I, I like that. <laughs> this is Mike and Patty and uh, their daughter, Angela, who's now 21 and probably soon to get engaged. Very exciting. Uh, this is Brett and Kathy, and they have a daughter named Nicole. Uh, uh, they hit a bump in their marriage, but it brought Brett closer to the Lord. And uh, I'll never forget about a year ago when he came and he met me in my driveway, and he said, I need to talk because I think I'm getting a divorce. And we went to a Starbucks, and uh, he accepted Christ, and he's on the road to recovery, getting his life together. He's just a great guy. Uh, but the thing he said to me that rung true in my heart is he said, if I would have done what you told me to do five years ago, I wouldn't be in this situation. Now imagine if he would have said, I wish you would have told me this five years ago. This is Dave and Veronica. They have two kids, Michael and uh, Brandon, uh, just uh, a fun bunch of kids. This is uh, Bill and Amira. And uh, they moved on to our cul-de-sac to get away from the kids uh, at their old house. And uh, we have 29 of them uh, there. Uh, Bob and Tracy, uh, who uh, have two, two boys, uh, uh, Taylor and Carson. Carson's just a little bit younger than Ethan, came to his birthday party. He's very cool. This is, um, this is Gary and Karen. And they have a teenage boy named Christopher. Used to skateboard down my driveway when I first moved in. Used to drive me nuts. Uh, but now he's a high schooler, and uh, he's on to bigger and better things. I like that. Uh, this is Jim and Gail. They have two daughters, Jennifer, who is uh, 14, and um, Jessica, who is uh, three or four. 
This is uh, Regan and Barbara. And this is a cool thing because I've been, you know, I always pray just for God to give me touch points into their life. When my son became a special, became, when we realized he was a special needs kid in our school district, he got assigned a speech teacher. Guess who a speech teacher is? It's Barbara right here. Very cool God thing. Uh, this neighbor I don't know at all. This is, uh, I think it's Don and Mary Beth. They have five boys. I just know I need to pray for them. Um, this is uh, um, uh, they just um, the couple that did live here. They just moved to Arizona, and there's a renter in here right now. I don't know them. And this is um, Kathy and Danny, and uh, I've gotten to know them well. And I shared a little bit about Kathy's story uh, yesterday. The cool thing is, is that Kathy is a networker and. Uh, she kind of networks with these neighbors right here. And what I love is that, you know, we just need to divide the cul-de-sac right here. I'll win this part to Jesus. She'll win this part to Jesus. And uh, I'm a little more ahead of the game than she is. Uh, but uh, the nice thing is we're praying that we get to heaven one day with a spiritual set of, you know, a street of asphalt will be turned into a street of gold. Now, why do I say that? Because, you know, when you minister to your neighbor. I used to bring somebody up and do an exercise here, and I'd make them draw their neighborhood. Um, and what happened was, is I was doing an evangelism conference, and I just kind of picked a guy. You know, I've picked on this guy before. And so I'd kinda, I just picked someone I had a little chemistry with, and I dragged him out of the front row, and I brought him up here and said, hey, draw your neighborhood. He couldn't even draw his neighborhood. And I said, hey, don't worry about it. We pulled everybody here. Most people like to cross the sea before they cross the street. So you know, don't, don't feel bad about it. Probably 90% of the room doesn't know their neighborhood. And um, so I just encouraged him. And he saw me after the first session. I was the first of three speakers at this evangelism conference. And he came up to me afterwards. He said, hey, you really embarrassed me. And I go, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to embarrass you. And he goes, no, you don't understand. You, you just really humiliated me. And I could see that the language was getting stronger. And I just said, hey, you know, it wasn't my intent uh, I'm just the first of three speakers today. The first guy is always the loser. The, you'll get better as the day goes on. So just trust me, and you'll enjoy the conference more. And he goes, no, you don't understand. I'm the next speaker. Ooh. I said, dude, you should be embarrassed. Uh, let me show you why this is important. Let's check our church history out a little bit here. Anybody got a gander at who this person is right here? That's me. Uh, any takers? Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher who was afraid to witness. In a shoe store, he laid a trembling hand on a clerk's shoulder and tried to lead him to Christ. Kimball left that day thinking his witness was a failure. The shoe salesman went into the back room and thought, if that Sunday school teacher is that interested in my life and my soul, then I should care about my own soul. He bowed his head and he committed his life to Christ. The shoe salesman's name was, let's get the next picture up there. Any takers? Yeah, you're a little bit stronger now that you know where we're going. D.L. Moody. Moody applied for church membership and they told him he didn't know enough and rejected him at first. Even though Moody had only an eighth grade education, he wanted to teach Sunday school but he didn't know how. He kept pursuing it, and eventually he got his own class, 
and he started preaching as a layman, and God used him. In 1873, he went to England and began to preach. A revival broke out for two years there, and he ministered there. A refined English pastor, let's see if you know this guy. Hey, you're a little bit more quiet now, aren't you? Uh, F.B. Myers. He was a uh, refined, influential uh, English pastor that heard about Moody and invited him to his church. Myers didn't know Moody's background and limited education. Moody was the only man alive that could pronounce the word Jerusalem with only one syllable. F.B. Myers listened and thought, why did I ever invite this man to my church and when will he ever go home? Kind of like what Rick's thinking about hiring me. Uh, after Moody left, Meyer was having tea with some of his ladies from his church. They shared with him how Moody had touched their lives, and as a result, they had led every girl to Christ in their Sunday school class. That day, God spoke to the heart of F.B. Myers and said, Do I have all the keys of your life? Myers said, You don't, but you will. And he made a full surrender to Christ. F.B. Myers then came to America preaching on absolute surrender. Myers influenced this man. Takers? J. Wilbert Chapman. Chapman was a young man on a college campus who was discouraged, defeated, and about to quit. Does that sound like anybody in this room? He heard Myers saying, are you willing to give God everything? If not, are you willing to be made, mo- are you willing to be made willing? Chapman said... That's me. God, make me willing. Chapman went on to be a great evangelist. When his work grew, Chapman needed help setting up chairs and tents, and he hired an ex-baseball player named Billy Sunday. Chapman discipled and invested, key words there, discipled and invested in Sunday's life. When Chapman went into the pastorate, Sunday acquired the role to preach. We're told that some 500,000 people came to know Christ because of the ministry of Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday went to uh, North Carolina in 1926, and he began a great crusade, and a revival broke out. A few years later, the churches in North Carolina wanted Billy Sunday to come back because they believed God was going to do another great revival. Sunday, Billy Sunday was sick, and he recommended this man go instead of him. His name was Mordecai Ham. Billy Sunday had mentored and invested. Are you picking up a little theme here? Mentored and invested in Mordecai. Mordecai Ham went to North Carolina in 1934, and he was thought to be a controversial preacher, kind of like those controversial preachers that go to Syria and Iran and other places like that. Many churches didn't want to be involved in these meetings, which caused even more non-believers to want to come. (laughs) Young people came to check it out. For two weeks he preached without giving an invitation. And on the third week he gave an invitation to young people in the crowd. They say that when Mordecai Ham would preach, they felt like his finger was pointing right at them and said, you are a sinner. It seemed like he was pointing directly at so many of the young people, they would hide behind the ladies with the big hair and the big hats. That night, when he called the invitation, a young man stepped out and said, I want to be a follower of Christ. His name was Grady Wilson. And right behind him came his best friend, Billy Graham, who can't talk about the lives impacted by him. Now, why do I tell you that story? Because when your church gets aligned with the purposes 
and sees the impact of what a life can have. And you're all talking the same language. There's a Sunday school teacher that was over in that classroom four years ago, and he said to his Sunday school class, who would be another kid that you would like to see come to church? And there was a little boy in that classroom named Colton. And Colton said, I would like to have my friend named Danny come to church with me. And when Colton, as a four-year-old, asked Danny to come to church, his mom, Kathy, didn't want Danny to have somebody else take him to church, so she brought him to this church called Saddleback. And I'll never forget the day when Kathy, after her first visit, when she came uh, coming down the cul-de-sac, and I happened to be talking to my neighbors, and she said, you know, I just went to your church. And I didn't know yet if that was a good or a bad thing. And she goes, if I'd have known this is what church was like, I would have come here years ago. And I love it because she looked at our neighbors and she said, do you go to that church? And they go, no. And she goes, why not? <laughs> About nine months later, Kathy came to know Jesus as her Lord and Savior. And I'll never forget baptizing her right over there. But it happened because of a four-year-old little boy named Colton. Now, by God's providence, Colton is now nine, and Danny is now nine. And actually, Colton goes to my daughter's school, and actually, Colton's in the same class with my daughter. So I'm like going, Erica, this is a good dude. Oh, you want to get to know him. But I thought it would be great, since I'm on the home turf, I thought it would be great if you got to know these two kids. So, could I bring Danny and Colton out? Pretty cool, you look at all that. Now the great thing is, is they really don't have a clue what's happening. Uh, there's like going, I got to come here, sit in the back and have free food and candy and get out of school. So, but I just wanted you to get to meet them because these two guys are studs in my eyes. So guys, thanks, thanks for missing school. And go back there with your parents. Woo! I tried to get the parents to come out on stage. And, you know, the older you get, the more shy you get for some reason. So maybe next year's conference I can pull them out when they know Jesus a little bit more securely and aren't so scared of you. <laughs> Number three. When you're talking about evangelism, sharing starts with caring. Sharing starts with caring. So often, we don't care because we've forgotten what it was like before we knew Jesus. 
You can never forget who Jesus was. And you can never forget where you came from. I want to show you this clip so that you can kind of understand and never forget where seekers and non-believers are at. Now, here's a practical exercise you can do in your group, less than 90 seconds. This is my table right now, this is my small group. Sharing starts with caring. Give me the first name of somebody in your neighborhood who needs to know Jesus, first name only, start there. Was it? Rick. Rick Warren, thank you. Uh, <laughs> Mike. George. George? Okay, now, a little bit of honesty, he can't think of anybody, but guaranteed when he comes to his group the next week, he's gonna know somebody, right? Okay. Sally. You bailed this dude out really quick. <laughs> Must be a friend. Okay. Thank you for the honesty, though. Sally? Malian? Mary. Mary. Okay. What just happened? <laughs> Again, nothing, I guess. Uh, what just happened? Accountability just happened. Because in less than 90 seconds, when I see this guy in group next week, I can go, How's Rick? And he's going to go, Rick who? Rick, the guy you're praying to come to know Jesus. Oh, Rick, Rick. Hey, Rick's doing good. Rick's doing good. And you start to build into the presence that people know and understand that they need to find Christ. Simple exercise, but it also, and the two guys who didn't know a name, I can guarantee you after this conference, they're gonna get to know their neighbor. So next year when I pick on you, you'll know at least a name. And I just appreciate, you know, you could have made it, Joe, and nobody else would have known. So a little bit of integrity marks to both of you guys. Number four, when you're talking about how to move from making friends to reaching friends, subgrouping is a key to getting groups ready and reaching new people. Subgrouping is a way when the numbers go up, care goes down. And at Saddleback, we say, you grow a group as big as you like. I don't care. I am not gonna die on the hill of birthing groups. You just grow that group as big as your house can take it because some people are natural gatherers. They can get 30, 40 people in their home. I don't wanna penalize them. But this is what I do say. I do say, honor a ratio of one to 10. You know, the military will say, you know, you can handle a ratio of one to seven. Sociologists will say you can handle a ratio of one to eight. Um, if you need a biblical reason for a ratio of one to 10, uh, the best thing I can come up with is that uh, Jesus had 12 disciples, he was God, uh, and he lost one, so uh, we're less than Jesus, so let's take it down to 10. So if you need it, there you go. Um, but when you're talking about subgrouping, you wanna think of it strategically in your house so that you can raise leaders and you can raise and mobilize groups. On the leader side with the three S's, if this is my small group right here, and I can see, what's your first name? Jim. If I see Jim's here, if I go to Jim and say, hey Jim, would you ever consider leading a new group? What's he gonna say? No, why? I can't do it, I, I feel inadequate, I don't feel qualified, I don't have the time. He's gonna give me every reason why he can't. 
So I don't even want to ask him. But what I want to do is be able to say, I can, in my house and in my small group, I can help raise Jim to be as a leader without him even knowing it. And so what I do is your first S right there is we subgroup and we just take a, a group of people into the kitchen uh, where I like to go and a group of people that are in the living room and I just say, hey Jim, could you just lead a quick discussion and just do one sentence and just talk about it a little bit and just kind of get to know one another and then we'll, we'll, we'll kind of come back together again. Well, I talk to Jim, I go, Jim, how'd that go? It went good. Thank you, Jim, for playing along here. Uh, so I talked to Jim, and it went good. So the next thing I want to do is after a few months, and he's comfortable with that, then I want to take it to the next level, and that is I want to give him a section of the study. And Jim goes, hey, I don't know if I did a sentence. I don't know if I can do a section. And I go, it's just a section. It's just three or four sentences instead of one sentence. And so, you know, Jim uh, says, well, okay, I'll kind of do that. And we kind of do the same thing. And I let him do that a number of times. Pretty soon, you know, uh, I find out that I have tickets to one of the NBA Final Four games, and it's the night of group. And you know I would never put sports before Jesus. But I see Jim has been doing groups so well. So I've got tickets to the game that night. So I just call Jim up and I say, I'm sick. <coughs> No, I'm just kidding. Um, I would want to challenge Jim to be able to some night with me there to do the whole study with the group. And over time, strategically, by subgrouping and getting the numbers down so that the care can go up, I can raise a leader. Now, in the same ways, which will, this will play a better critical role in the next point, is I want to be able to raise a leader out of it, too. Sociologists will tell you that when you walk into a room within the first 90 seconds, you kind of know who you want to meet with. So what I can do with Jim, if our group starts to grow, I can do the same type of thing, but I can do it in a sense of saying, you know, hey, I'm going to go into the other room. A couple of you stay with Jim, and we can kind of mix it up a little bit so that people can kind of, you know, decide do they want to come with me or do they want to go ahead and go with Jim. And I always want to make it as easy as possible on uh, the people to stay and to bond with Jim. Then the next thing I want to be able to do is after time, I want to say, if I see that a few people are starting to stick with Jim, I want to kind of merge them together. And I want to say, hey, you stay with Jim and I'll take some of these other folks. And there will come a day or a campaign when we say, hey, can you help us launch some new groups? And Jim is going to be ready to move out of his comfort zone and be able to help us reach more people for Jesus. You can use subgrouping very, very strategically. Now, number five is in doing groups for almost 20 years now, you've got to recognize there will always be challenges to doing evangelism in groups. There will always be challenges. Now, why? Because there is a tension between fellowship and evangelism. Here's a few reasons. It meets their needs. When people, how many of you experience when you get into group, you finally get to know some people, you enjoy them, and you love them, and do you want to leave them? No, because it meets a need. You've bonded with people. 
You've had the Genesis part where you've, you, know, you realize you can't do it alone and you've met some people. Another reason why there's a tension is we have fractured community. One is it's geographically. I have three older brothers and an older sister. Every one of us lives in a different state. Our family units are fractured. We're also been going into the second and third generation of households that have been fractured because of divorce. And so there are people sitting out there with poor models of what homes should be like. And they're very broken and because of the fracturedness, they're very starved for community because they didn't get it. And on the opposite end of that, in some parts of the nation, there's the culture of family where you don't want to separate from blood family to even consider reaching out to the community. I was on staff at a church, and when we got there, it was just like, you know, you could see there were pockets of three generations of families that are part of that church. And as a pastor, I knew if one left, the whole clan was gone. And so there's the whole part where we have fractured community. And the other part is, is that evangelism just doesn't come easy. Evangelism is a tricky thing. Now, how do you start to move into that tension between fellowship and evangelism? And that's through understanding the relationship between worship and evangelism. When you understand that worship means sacrifice, Rick laid it out perfectly when he says it's not about you. When you understand that it is not about you, and you understand that worship is surrender and sacrifice, Saddleback Church would not be here if Rick and Kay didn't sacrifice to come to Southern California. They could have stayed in a lot more comfortable places in life. But when you know worship in its true sense, then you're willing to take a step out of your comfort zone. So at Saddleback, we don't fight the tension of saying birth a group because we launch groups for life. What we want to do, though, is periodically through a campaign, touch into everybody's life so that they will be willing strategically to help us start or nurture groups at a seasonal time, we think like the farmer, seasonal, so that then after the 40-day commitment is over, they can go back to their group. Now, here's a few of the things. One is, we see through evangelism, some groups are just open. We have some groups that are on our internet and they say, send as many people as you like. And they're really shaped for that. They, can, they are just gatherers. They can keep bringing in. Some groups are closed, but even if they're closed, we always tell them to be open individually. Now, just because a group is closed doesn't mean they're not working their own relational networks. It's just saying I'm closed to being on the internet at Saddleback Church. And there's a, I wrote a little article there on page 93 that can explain that. But the other part of how we help groups understand evangelism through worship is being ready for campaigns. And because we launch groups for life, sometimes it's awkward to leave a group. So when we have a campaign every year, then people have an excuse to leave. Because when you launch a group for life, it can be awkward to say, you know what, I really don't like you. Uh, so what we do is we just launch a campaign and Rick says, hey, we want you to help start other new groups. And so they have an excuse to leave saying, hey, I would stay with you for life, but Pastor Rick wants me to go start one and sacrificially I will go start another group. 
Uh, some, on the next bullet point, they will leave, they'll raise a leader and come back. In my small group during 40 days of community, we started four groups. Our group for the 40 days met on Tuesday, and we all helped start a new group on Thursday. And then after the campaign was over and we raised a leader, we kind of all came back to our little nesting place. But we did find one of the couples in our group ended up, they had so much fun in their neighborhood. They go, you know what? We feel God is calling us to stay with this group. And we blessed them and said, this is great. You go for it. And they're still leading that group today. Or you can enlist new hosts that can help you. And the great thing about it is, we will go farther faster launching new groups all the time than trying to break against the culture of Southern California saying you need to birth a group. I have died so many times on that hill that I'll just launch a new group and I'll do, I'll, if you saw the exponential growth in our groups, we have grown more because we'll launch new groups. And you know, some groups naturally do birth and they do that, but I'll tell you what, it's in the single digit percent of groups because of this whole fractured community. Now, here's something you've gotta be ready for when you talk about evangelism. You're gonna get two challenges. One is people gonna, are gonna think you're, you're numbers conscience. And they're gonna say, all you care about is numbers. God doesn't care about numbers. Well, to that you need to be able to say, who says? Because in the Old Testament, there's a book called Numbers. <laughs> so maybe he does care about them a little bit more than you think he does. But you help them understand that behind every number is a soul. Now here's the other thing you're gonna get. They're gonna say, oh, we want quality people, not quantity. And to that I would say, who says they have to be enemies of each other? Let me give you an example. Lisa and I go camping and we lose both our kids. If you've been with us camping, that is not out of the realm of possibility. But for right now, it is a story. We lose both our kids. Lisa goes north to look for them. I go south to look for them. We come back in one hour, we have one of the kids. We don't say, oh, let's go home. We found the quality one. Now we think it, but we don't say it. <laughs> it's like fishing. You want a lot of fish, but you want a lot of big fish. I love evangelism, but I love partnering with Buddy Owens and saying, but we've got to take them deeper because if we don't take them deep, they won't last the long haul. Then number six, here's some strategies for evangelism in your group. Cast vision from the first day by doing that little exercise. When I say group versus individual approach, one of the things I've learned in small groups is don't do an, your small group doesn't have to do an event. Find an event that unbelievers are doing and bring your group to it. On my cul-de-sac, we do block party. I mean, we party for every reason. And, um, and so what I do is I invite some of the couples out of my small group to come to our block party. And so as a group, we do evangelism. And they get to bond with some of the people in my cul-de-sac more than I get to. And there's a bunch of things. A couple of things I want to let you know on the patio, uh, if it's not raining. 
I don't know how to do this on the uh, Elmo right here, but I'll just kind of hold it up. We give, uh, we give different kits away. Let me start out with this one. This is a, can I get this on the, on the Elmo? Yeah, this looks pretty good. This is a, what we call a welcome kit. And what we've discovered is some of our groups are always you know, shy about going to welcoming, welcoming new people. So what we did is we designed a little kit that says welcome to the community. It's got a little two-minute DVD about Saddleback Church. It's got a few coupons in there, nothing else. We, we have a little thing. We say, bring a plate of cookies, bring a little kit, and drop it off to anybody who moves new into your neighborhood. It's just a way to bring evangelists to say, hey, welcome to the neighborhood, and, and how are you? This is the next one that rolled off. You can't quite see it too well, but maybe we can get a great camera shot on it from our great camera team that has been volunteering for this uh, conference. This is what we call a baby kit. And uh, there's a cool story behind this, but um, when, I, when my team was designing this, we want to say everybody who has a baby, they love little things. And so in the guts of this boat is a, a little bag. It's a little lullaby thing. It's, there's a letter from Kay that's saying we know what it's like to raise kids. And it's a great evangelistic tool. And what was great is what I remember when I, um, when I was first designing this with our team, I talked to a guy in our church who, go, who owns a box company. And I said, hey, you know, can you just give us a simple little box that has the ABC, you know, the little kid box on it, and that's where we throw some things. And I'll, I'll never forget him because he goes, Steve, I know you better than that. What do you really want? I go, wow, what I really want is I want an ark. And he goes, great. He goes, I have three engineers at my box company. If they can't design an ark, I'll fire them. And uh, so uh, he designed an ark. And he goes, and he has some graphic design people, and he had a contest at his business to try and work the graphics for that little box. And that's how this little baby kit came along. Then we realized one of the great things that happens in people's lives is death. So we designed this little pine box and a little coffee. Just kidding. Come on. Hey. <laughs> I saw some of you going, see, I told you that's what Saddleback was like. I knew it all the time. <laughs> Thanks for the vote of confidence. Really appreciate it. We have a comfort kit. And inside the comfort kit, it's a, just a little simple thing. I can show you. This is uh, some CD music that Rick Muchow did. Just to say, if you need some comfort, listen to it. And then right here is just... 31 verses to get them through the first month. And on this side is a letter from Rick just saying we care about you and just a couple articles and from sermons that Rick did. Simple, but something you can give to somebody going through grief, whether they lost, some, lost a loved one or something like that. Now out on the table back, oh, I'm sorry, they're at the dugout. Thank you for the cue on that. They're over in the dugout right over here. You go out the auditorium. There's balloons up there. You can kind of look at these kits, see what's there. If you want to practice your spiritual gift of shoplifting, you can take one home, and uh, you can be all set for right there. Number seven is you need to have a curriculum strategy. Evangelism is always tricky in groups. Now, how many of you have over two children in your home? Okay, would it not be insane 
If you came to the dinner table and say, hey, let's vote on what's for dinner. If you did that, the kids are in the majority and you are in the minority, so you'd be having popsicles and ice cream and potato chips and you know, chicken nuggets every day if you left it up for popular vote. But do you do that? No, you're the parents. So you have Taco Bell and Carl's Jr. and things like that. But you're the parents, so you determine the, the, the health for your kids. How often in small groups, when everyone's taken the spiritual health assessment and everybody's low in evangelism, do you sit around group and say, uh, what do you want to study? I don't know. My marriage sucks. Let's do a marriage study. Yeah, mine sucks too. Let's do that. Okay, let's do a marriage study again. You need to lead. And right here we just put a few great evangelism curriculums that you can do in your group. And um, I was over at the uh, serendipity table over there and talking with a couple of my buddies who are doing that. And they just came out with this new one I thought was pretty cool. I always like to be able to share some new stuff I, I like. It's a new series they call Finding Jesus in the Movies. And it's kind of like a movie night, and then next week you kind of do a study. So one night you watch Gladiator, and then you uh, answer some questions the following week. And the next night you will ask, watch Last of the Mohicans, uh, but they're not all guy flicks and stuff like that. Another night you're doing Signs, and another night you're doing The Legend of Bagger Vance. But just a cool little study uh, that you can uh, kind of check and kind of do. So to my friend Jim, do that when you subgroup next time in, in the group. So now here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to page um, 26 and page 30. Page 26, God, this stuff's in my way. I feel like Josh all of a sudden. There's a home kit, there's a comfort kit, it almost hit you. Want the baby kit, there you go. Anybody want the pine box? Just kidding, no. Um, go to your group planner. On page 126, and I want you to look at the evangelism. We kind of put them out of order there just to kind of mix you up a little bit. Uh, trust me, it wasn't intentional. What are we currently doing in evangelism in your personal small group? And then what's one thing that you'd like to see happen? So spend a couple minutes, focus on that, and uh, then I'm going to let you share it with somebody. So evangelism. Look at page 126 and page 130. If you leave during this time, you will have acid indigestion at lunch. So... Page 126, you should have it up on the overhead here, in case you get lost, page 126 and 130. I'm sorry, on the PowerPoint.
Now, I understand that a lot of our examples were peace-related, and that's when I thought Rick was going to be talking about peace, so we'll give you a lot of grace on this planner, but just try and think in the crawl section of where you may want to do some evangelism in your group. Okay, why don't you turn with your neighbor and share with them about evangelism and what you'd like to do in your group. Okay, let me pull you back together. One of the things I'd like you to do is when you're talking about evangelism in your group is to start slow. And like I said, after the next session, after lunch, we're going to talk about how do you implement these planners without frying your group. But now what I want you to do is uh, to huddle in privately. You may not be the point person again, but I think you have a lot to bring to the table. Is turn to page 133. Turn to page 133 and 137. Page 133 and 137. And when your responsibility is to help people in the network try to discover evangelism and, and that dicey tension between fellowship and evangelism and evangelism and worship, what I want you to do is look through there and look at your planner on page 123. What would be a dream? What would be a dream? I mean, my dream is simple that I just dream that every person in our small group network, whether they want to invite their neighbors to their group or not, and I'll just tell you right now, the thing I've learned in small group ministry, if I took a personality test, I'm one of these types that everything is in order. I mean, my family, my siblings tease me about this, you know, there's a certain way the shutters are open in the morning and in the afternoon and in the evening, you know. My books are flush with the bookshelf, you know. I mean, all these little things that, uh, I hate it when my wife says uh, anal retentive, I just prefer the term retentive. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know why I'm wired that way. What is more bizarre is that I'm wired into small group ministry because there is no path to perfect success. Because, like, in my neighborhood, I've had more success getting people plugged into other groups because affinity and style, we don't mesh. But I know in some neighborhoods it does work. With some groups, they work because of geography. With some groups, they work because of affinity. With some groups, they work because of neighborhood. I think all three are great, but don't pin people down to trying to do it just one particular way. Now, where I would say is you can never sacrifice the evangelistic front of your neighbors. So I'm still going to win them to Jesus, even though I may have a different small group. And if they can't fit into a group, I'll pull them into mine. But just understand that there's no one-size-fits-all. So huddle in together privately, page 133. If you, could be, if you could dream, if you could be king for a day or queen for a day, hopefully that covers the whole room. Uh, but if you could be one of those two things, what would your dream be for evangelism? And you can kind of look to page uh, 137 for some helps. What's a barrier? What's an obstacle? And then what would be a measurable action plan. So huddle in for a few minutes with that, and then I'm going to break you into your table so you can share your words of wisdom.
Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And to dive in deeper, get more resources, or join the Small Group Network, just head over to smallgroupnetwork.com.